This episode of Notes from the Back Row is brought to you by Back Row Patreons, GC, Shiva, and Tony Sove. Thank you guys so much. Join up yourself for early podcast access, exclusive content, and even an end-of-year swag bag. Find out more on back-row.com Patreon. And now, on to the show. Hello, this is Notes from the Back Row, a podcast like no other, different themes, rotating hosts, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. Hello and welcome to Notes from the Back Row. I am Jenna and I'm here with Carlo. Hey And we are dusting off the old once every three month segment that we call Post Anime Club. Is it, is it three months or is it more like every We're half year? <laughs> every half year segment. Yeah. The point of Post Anime Club, for those who forgot from six months ago, um is that both carlo and i loved anime and, and manga as a kid uh and now <laughs> as a kid's <laughs> singular we were both <laughs> the we same both child kid. yeah exactly <laughs> we just split apart at one point and i went to belgium and you st- <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a crazy story that's actually paralleled in one of these films yeah, really? but um <laughs> we loved anime and all this stuff and then we felt like we didn't know enough about Japanese cinema and so this was our excuse to just basically try and watch as much as we can and educate ourselves Hmm. and so in light of how crazy the world has been right now timestamp June 2020 (laughs) I I doubt things will be back to normal by the time this one's out but no not at all Mm -hmm. (laughs) no never (laughs) sorry and in some ways you know normal was never normal and exactly here we are progressing slightly what will, what will be the new normal who will who can tell so either in the the, the utopian or dystopian future when you listen to this mm. um we decided to switch it up a little bit uh yeah. because it felt nice to just have like two golden cinematic nuggets to yeah watch. i mean just make it more manageable as well like we were covering entire rivers first episode we did ozu and then we did uh itami and it was all it felt a little bit too time-consuming and it, like effort-consuming as well. Um, that's why we only did one of them, like every couple of months, just watching as many movies as we can from one director and like kind of burning out a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, from now on, I figured we'd do it Hose of Horror style, just pair up two sort of thematically similar movies, either from the same director, um, which won't be the case for this episode. Um, but yeah, uh, you want to get into what movies? Yeah. So we, yeah, as you said, we picked these two because they felt sort of visually similar. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, very unique and extra. <laughs> totally. Both very, both very eclectic as well. Like very obviously inspired by American cult cinema from that era, like seventies, eighties, especially. Um, also, also both movies, if you want to watch more movies like these within Japanese cinema. Um, yeah, good luck with that. Because, <laughs> it, it, yeah, these movies are pretty unique on, on several levels. Um, there's actually another like accidental connection that I noticed while researching these movies. Um, but I'm not going to spoil that just yet. We'll, uh, I'll get to it when we get to it. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some crossover between these movies. Uh, some surprising ones as well. Both of these live action movies have the cartoon equivalent of big dick energy. Yeah, Jesus, really. <laughs> For sure. Big, big tune energy. Mm. Um, yeah, so we're, we're talking about the Stardust Brothers and House. Houseu. Houseu. And both yeah. of these films, which Carla will be giving us the background of how they got mm. made and all of this, which I'm very yes. excited to hear, especially of the Stardust Brothers, which I mm. never knew until Carlo told me about. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, these movies are, they're both feature debuts for both of the directors who are uh, Makoto Tezuka and Nobuhiko Obayashi, respectively. 
Yes. And uh, yeah, as, as we also mentioned in previous episodes, both Carlo and I have drawn our whole lives and we love uh, animation and our aesthetic leads towards the colorful and wacky. And mm-hmm. these movies are like 100% five star that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get um, into the Stardust Brothers. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> What is this movie? <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a wacky movie. I was very very excited to talk about this movie. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about how I found this movie, which I don't really remember how or why I found this movie. I feel like <laughs> I I feel like I just saw someone tweet about it, and this was before this movie was re-released, which it currently is on um, Third Window is a UK, UK publisher who released a like fancy HD restoration on Blu-ray DVD. It has a soundtrack CD as well. Um, it's a UK company, but they do like uh, region-free releases. So wherever you are in the world, you can watch this Blu-ray as long as you, uh, as you have a Blu-ray player. Nice. Um, so yeah, the first time I found out about this movie, I probably watched like a trailer which exists uh, on YouTube and I was like I have to see this right fucking now so I tracked <laughs> it down like being resourceful as I am uh, this was in May 2019 and so I tracked it down I sat down and watched it like the very same evening I was just blown away um, and then v- shortly after I found out this movie was going to play like film festivals all over um, starting with the Prince Charles cinema in London uh, which I've gone to before because my uh, my sister lives in London. Um, and was going to have like a Q&A with the director, Makoto Tesca. Oh. So I saw that and was like, okay, I'm buying a ticket. And I basically said to Michelle, okay, pack your bags. We're going to London. And <laughs> I don't know. This was in May. And I feel like the screening was maybe a, a month or two after. Uh, so I was ready to watch this movie again, like on the big screen at the Prince Charles, which is a very... A uh, cool little alternative cinema in the heart of London, um, Leicester Square. Um, so yeah, that the Q and Q and A was very cool as well. Like this was before the Blu-ray had even come out, um, which I think happened a couple of months ago, um, early 2020. A really fun Q and A. Got to learn a lot about this movie that wasn't really public information yet because no one had heard about this movie even outside of Japan at least. There was one question that got a pretty fun answer. I thought that this guy who asked Makoto Tesca about his favorite joke in a movie that was already filled with like ad lib. Like a lot of this movie is just improvisation on the spot, like dialogue and things that people were doing. And his answer was making the movie itself was kind of the biggest joke, which (laughs) really tells you a lot about the spirit of this movie and the fact that everyone's just very enthusiastically making a movie without taking it seriously. Um, so yeah, I thought that was very cool. Um, yeah, I, I read should... that this movie was made because he just created a silly soundtrack and then made the movie afterward. Yeah, it's not him actually. Um, oh, okay. So Makoto Tesca, um, which we probably should mention, is the son of Osamu Tesca, who created Astro Boy ah. and just the whole slew of other classic manga like uh, you've got buddha Otsutsu kirihito dororo just honestly i can pull up a list of this guy's works and keep going for like 50 minutes and just <laughs> listing stuff he's done um like the most prolific uh guy in manga He's, he was even nicknamed like the godfather of manga which nice tell you everything you ever read anything by this guy i know astro boy mm-hmm. i'd have to look like, at the others 
Yeah, Astro Boy is like his most mainstream work. That's the most marketable as well. Like you've got that very iconic Astro Boy design as well, which I love. I don't know how good I find the stories. They're a bit like childish and um, right. But yeah, he's he's he's. I'm a big fan of this guy. He's like really good and, and at the writing stories, and he's a very smart guy. He used to be a doctor before he became a manga author. Um, especially Buddha as well. If you can get your hands on that, that's like one of the all-time best. I don't know anything like comic books, but just like piece of media that's like partly fiction, partly nonfiction. Um, yeah, it's, hmm. it's incredible. So yeah, his son. Um, in 19 early 1980s he was still in college and he had made this uh, award-winning student film called moment and he was showing this around festivals and everything and doing like tv shows and uh, there was one tv show in japan called bokura club it's there that he met a guy called haruo shikada and haruo shikada is a is a musician and he was so impressed with uh, tezuka's movie moment that he made him a proposal that he basically couldn't resist. So what Shikada did was he made this soundtrack for a movie that didn't exist uh, called Legend of the Stardust Brothers. And he asked Tezuka basically if he was interested in writing and directing a movie based on the songs that he had made. And that's sort of like how this movie came to be. First came the music and then came the rest, which is very, very peculiar. Like I've never heard of that, that before. Um, <laughs> But you watch it and you're like, yeah, I see it. <laughs> yeah, true, true. When you watch it, you get it for sure. What do you think about the music in this? The music is hilarious. I mean, like, mm. so the, the plot of this film real briefly is that it's, it's I mean, it's a satire on pop music and, and on mm -hmm, that sort yeah. of um, manufactured marketing of pop yeah, bands. Yeah, yeah. And, you yeah. know, like the, the, the big record producer in the room setting, putting two people together, like yeah. action <laughs> figures and saying, now you're a pop band kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, that, I mean, they do seem to be maybe striking out a little bit on the visual K bands, mm -hmm. but yeah. it feels honestly just more like that they had a silly soundtrack and they were like, yeah. we're going to put together a, just a silly of a story to, to match this ridiculous soundtrack. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all in, in service of the soundtrack, really. But there's so much cool stuff going on in this movie, like visually as well, that you can't just dismiss it as, oh, it's just a movie based on a soundtrack. And okay, there's like very little substance, really. It's just a fun time. But yeah, I'm just always in awe of these movies that throw so much stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And I feel like a lot of what they threw at the wall here does stick. Totally. Um, like much like House, which we'll talk about later, is a very eclectic movie. Like I said, very inspired by American cult movies. You've got like obvious inspirations, Rocky Horror and Phantom of the Paradise as well, which are both musicals that have like a both a comedic vibe, but still like this undertone of horror going on. Yeah, and this movie came out in 1985, so this was yeah. definitely at a time where all of these sort of already kind of off-the-wall weird things have, mm -hmm. have come out and, and yeah, been yeah, popular, yeah. so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this came out in 85, like you said, but it took like three years to get this movie out. So it was first started developing this movie in 1982, and there's a, a, a little, like... Uh, well, pretty extensive, actually, interview with Makoto Tezuka on the Blu-ray from Turbo Window, where he talks about a lot uh, about this movie, like funding as well, which was quite challenging. Um, like I said before, this was his debut mov movie, so he, he didn't really have any pull, even though he was the son of. Uh, tried to sell it to a bunch of like big-name studios, but they all said, we cannot make this movie on a budget. Um, but then he got in touch with... Uh, the people who own the department chain uh, Seibu in Japan, which is still a thing, and they wanted to break into movies, so they ended up going into business together. So nice. this movie is funded by a department store chain. Love so, it. Yeah, sure, why not? But yeah, this movie wasn't a hit when it came out. Like I said before, they started developing this in 82. It took three years to get made. And one thing Tezuka says is that Tokyo was such a rapidly changing scene, especially in terms of fashion, which is a strong point of this movie, which is also funny because most of the people in this movie just wore their own clothes. So <laughs> I guess that's what you get, like the perks of relying on a bunch of like weirdo artistic people to make your movie. They have weird artistic wardrobes. But yeah, because Tokyo is such a fast moving place in terms of fashion, when it came out, it 
already seemed outdated to a lot of people in 85. They were like, what is this 1982 style in this <laughs> weird movie? Um, cinephiles as well apparently said this movie was too strange. Critics just plain ignored this movie. So it kind of got like, I don't know, hit under a rug and no one really talked about it. And it, it took a while. Like, I mean, we're now, I don't know, man, almost like 40 years later and it is sort of a cult movie in Japan now and the rest of the world is gonna slowly catch up I feel as it gets more exposure like it's been playing festivals this blu-ray is out now as well by third window but yeah it was it was rough at first that's that's also the reason why no one had ever heard of this movie there was just no exposure or anything like even within Japan it, it took a very very long time for this movie to get some traction and this movie is great. Like, you know, mm. it's it's ridiculous it. and sublimely so. It is, yeah. you know, it opens with the scene of the two Stardust brothers who are their, this pop group. Mm. And they're performing to an audience that is literally black and white, stoic. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because it's like that sort of classic, you know, the, the colorful band dancing around and being mm. like really dynamic while the, the black and white dusty audience, you know, stares stone faced. But... <laughs> Even better, and this is what I loved about this movie in general, is that like there are scenes where the band, which is in color, reaches out and grabs the audience who is mm -hmm. still in black and white. <laughs> yeah. So it's not even that like, you know, the it's not showing you that the camera is putting them in black and white to make a statement. It's showing you know these people are actually just black and white. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was very cool. Like off the bat, you know what you're in for, I feel, with this movie. Like, totally. That, that, that musical number as well. I was like, oh, just... Man, I was just giddy watching it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the music yeah. is so much like self-referential and self-aware yeah, yeah, yeah. and saying like, yeah. you know, we're twins and we're sexy, you know, like, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. then they're also like, and, and we don't it's know, satire, like we're trying so... really hard and you clearly don't care, you know, like that's like part of the lyrics mm -hmm. or whatever. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the way the music is in general is so funny because to me, mm. it just sounds like karaoke tracks. Like there's, <laughs> there's like maybe two instruments in the entire thing and, mm. or one guy running around playing all the instruments and overlaying it. Like it has yeah. a really, really bizarre production <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which, but it just adds to how funny it is. Like I, that felt like maybe wasn't totally on purpose, but it all just works. Like you said, it's like all of these really weird elements coming mm -hmm. together, and you know, clearly some producers that were like a, apparently a department store saying like, I ah, just make a film and leaving it yeah, up to these artists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, 1985 is a, is a is a strange time for Japanese cinema as well. It's still in this limbo of like what do Japanese audiences want so you can kind of make kind of anything. Um, you'll also see this uh, come back for Haosu as well. Like uh, there's just a stretch between, between like the late 70s and the 80s where Japanese cinema was kind of like trying to find its identity. So some weird things uh, managed to get through the net of Japanese more conservative cinema or like uh, but yeah, uh, the casting as well. We have, we've got to talk about the casting in this movie. So most of the people in this movie, uh, even the bigger names, there aren't actually any real actors in this movie outside of um, the girl who plays Marimo, uh, Kyoko Togawa. She has some experience acting and uh, would go on to do a bit more acting. Not very prolific, but outside of her, you've got like the main Stardust brothers, um, the rival musicians who end up having to work together to become the Stardust Brothers, played by actual musicians, uh, Kan Tagagi and Shingo Kubota, um, who are, I don't know, I, I found them very fun. And like they just have this uh, odd couple type of charisma uh, going on. Um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy these uh, guys in the titular, uh, titular roles. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, you've also got uh, Kiyohiko Ozaki, who plays, uh, you know, the, the the guy in charge of making them the Stardust Brothers, who makes them the offer of yeah, becoming like the, the Stardust of the Brothers. Yeah, the record label. Yeah, Atomic Minami. Um, his, him as well, like his history, he used to be kind of like this crooner guy back in the day. Um, definitely not an actor, even though he's been in a couple of movies. And this is the accidental connection I found because this guy is also in Haosu. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I didn't realize um, 
but, but he's kind of like unforgettable in Stardust Brothers as well. Um, he's like, amazing. Yeah, he is amazing. Like he's got these huge sideburns. Um, and he sits in he, this like triangular room behind mm, a desk where the lighting yeah. makes it look like it, it's like straight out of a comic book. Like oh, yeah. most of most of this, even like the camera yeah. <laughs> angles are straight out of a comic book. But mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, he just sits there stone faced. The typical guy behind a desk that says yeah. like, uh, we're going to come together with the master plan, except mm -hmm. it's like creating this concept of the Stardust Brothers where he's like, imagine a world where you are both brothers who who yeah. come from the same family, but were scattered to the winds. And now you have found each other and you come together and this is who mm. you're going to be. And the, the both of it, it's like uh, Shingo and Khan, right? They're both yeah. sitting there like, like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't want to do this. But, mm. <laughs> yeah, I love this guy. Uh, what did you think about him and his like uh, the way he looked and his English accent as well? I thought he was any... white. I thought he was going to be like the the creepy oh, white you guy, uh, yeah. you know, who runs everything from behind yeah, yeah, the yeah. scenes, actually, until yeah, he took yeah. his glasses off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think he's at least like half Japanese, half something else. But he's, in fact, 100% Japanese. Um, he just has a very good english pronunciation yeah and he doesn't have a very typical face i'll say um but yeah it's just kind of funny like i don't really realize after he had decided on this double bill that he was in this and in hosu and he's, he's not a lot in hosu he plays the uh dr togo the um professor that's supposed to join the girls at the house mm. um but that doesn't end up happening because uh, oh, what happens again? Oh, he falls in like a bucket and he has to get it removed or something <laughs> stupid like that. But yeah, he's done maybe five or six movies and they just happen to be these two movies. So yeah, thought that was fun. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, right. Um, some other people Makoto Tesca tried to get for this movie, but didn't end up working out. Uh, one of them was uh, Nagisa Oshima, the director, and Akira Kurosawa as well. But they were both in the middle of making movies. Akira Kurosawa at the moment, uh, at that time, uh, early 80s, was making uh, Ran. Um, I don't know what Oshima was working on, but yeah, that didn't happen. Um, and one other like really, really big name that he tried to get but didn't work out was Toshiro Mifune, uh, who was in all the Akira Kurosawa movies. Uh, <laughs> they wanted him in this. <laughs> yeah, they wanted him in this, absolutely. And. I don't want to spoil because it's a very much a holy shit kind of reveal in this movie for which part they wanted him. I think you know the the character I mean because there's like the most holy shit moment of this movie toward the end is it, a character reveal. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But I really, really don't want to spoil it. Yeah. Okay. It's, I it's, see what you're it, saying. Yeah. It, it's not important, but it's a moment that will kind of blow your mind. <laughs> like. What were, they, what were they thinking kind of moments? <laughs> it would have been insane. Like it's insane as is, but just having Toshiro Mifune as well in that mix would have made it even more insane. Um, but yeah, none of that really ended up working out. One other weird thing that I found looking up the cast of this movie. So I was, I was watching the, the extras on my Blu-ray uh, yesterday. I think it was in that little documentary that's that's on it. You've got like a pretty extensive interview with Makoto Tesca, and then you've got like a little documentary, but one that isn't new. It was like probably shortly after the movie came out that this was made because it's very much of that time. And is it like, hey, we have a movie and great deals on eggs today? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not really. It's it's more like just promotion about the movie. It's it, it's it almost feels like very slice of lifey you just get a lot of behind the scenes footage and sometimes people will explain about the movie but it's just fun being transported back to that time when they were all young and like uh busy making this movie and it's sort of presented as this program i don't know if it was a real program that did like just movie coverage or that kind of thing uh but it's something called atomic tv and this, with this woman conducting the interviews in the studio. Um, I think only the girl who played Marimo, uh, Kyoko Togawa, was with her in the studio. But yeah, this presenter has like these pink, thick-rimmed glasses and this, for and this forest green business suit. And there's like a bunch of VHS tapes in the background in this studio. Um, 
like very very like mid early 80s aesthetic dream uh, girl yeah <laughs> just thought it was pretty cool but yeah i think when the credits rolled on that little documentary thing i noticed the names of do you remember those two like bozos that are guarding the building these like punk guys yeah 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 okay so these guys uh were also musicians one of them is called taco just taco which means squid as in takoyaki and the other one is called sun plaza nakano <laughs> obviously Same. not a, not, <laughs> yeah i mean um, what a name jesus for real so i tried looking these guys up and i found an english wikipedia entry on sun plaza nakano, uh, nakano. and in his Wikipedia, it said that his likeness was used to create the Goombas in Super Mario. <laughs> However, I didn't find anything about that shit on the Japanese Wikipedia. So I kind of doubt that was true. And I wonder who put that in. Like, it, almost like it was a friend of him. They feel like Super Mario characters. That's true. That's true. So In this movie. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I was getting some strong, like earthbound uh vibes from this movie have you ever played that earthbound yeah. on super nintendo yeah also this very i don't know like inspired by american culture eclectic video game with just uh i think like some of the enemies in the game as well are these like bolt-headed punkers so they felt very much like that but yeah apparently some people think this guy is what the Goombas were based on. <laughs> but I did a search on Wikipedia as well. I put in like the Japanese name, uh, Goombas in uh, Japanese are called Kuribo. So I searched that on Wikipedia just to make sure, like did a quick scan and nothing came up. So I'm like, where is this coming from? Who's, <laughs> who is saying this? I'm like, sure, I want to believe it, but I don't know if I should believe it. <laughs> um, I just, yeah. I really like the, these guys act Very like these slapstick. punks who, who sort of guard the record mm. label from yeah. people who are trying to rush in and talk to the yeah. president. And mm. they end up sort of getting into this silly thing where um, when the Stardust Brothers first get called into the record label, one shows up in like full on punk outfit and the other one mm -hmm. shows up in like a tuxedo with his hair slicked <laughs> <Yeah>. back. <laughs> like no one knows how to approach a record label. Yeah, really. Exactly. <laughs> and um, so they kind of use this to their advantage when these guys try to beat them up and they're like, actually, I am the president. And they're like, oh, my God, I didn't know, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's like this kind of really silly cartoonish uh, mm, thing. Yeah, it's super cartoony, especially in those moments uh, with those guys as well. There's also like there's that character later on who looks he looked just like David Bowie to me. And oh, yeah, yeah. Issei, Issei is this, uh, the, he's a musician as well. Yeah, very David Bowie like super absolutely. deep and bowie and, yeah. and he's controlled by like a brain implant and like mm -hmm. you know and also trying to crush this the, the popularity of the stardust brothers who of course yeah. reach their peak really fast and then <laughs> they burn out there's an amazing <laughs> scene where shingo has his typical rock star burnout breakdown yeah. and he gets into drugs and drinking and then he has this fantasy horror sequence yeah. that just felt like uh it felt like an excuse for them to say like hey we have a budget yeah basically <laughs> let's, yeah. let's throw yeah. some rubber monsters yeah. in the mix and it's, it's so much fun it's so much fun and and again something you would not see a lot in japanese movies at the time like those that level of practical effects uh all done by a guy called uh, tomo haraguchi who was basically the only person in japan doing these kind of pra practical effects at the time um so it's all like this big coming together of talents on every level making this movie it's such a lightning in a bottle situation really um but yeah this haraguchi guy as well he worked on the 90s gamera trilogy which if you like kaiju movies it doesn't get much better than those um highest recommendation i know arrow video is uh putting a, Ga a gamera collection out soon which i pre-ordered the fuck out of and those movies are in there so they will be a lot more uh easier to get soon uh, he did effects for those as well. So yeah, there's that scene as well. That took me by, so much by surprise. Like, I'm like, holy shit. Now there's like, just like ugly ghoulies coming out of the woodwork in this scene. And they're all like really cool, practical effects and very well done. And like, man, this movie's a dream. It's a, a dream of a nightmare. Absolutely. That was definitely <laughs> the part of the movie where they're like, let's, let's give Carlos something. 
<laughs> I mean, they've been giving me like the entire movie is just a gift, to be honest, <laughs> for me. Like there's so much that I like about this movie. Um, there's so much funny. Just... I, even the lines are funny, like straight mm. up there. I love where there's a when they're trying to figure out if they they. Um... Well, no, and maybe it was after the horror line where basically mm. they're saying, you know, it's a pair. It's a pair deal. We both have to stick together and they're having drama. And mm. he says, if one of us leaves, you're only dust. <laughs> dust in the wind. Dude. And he's like, you're right. He's like, I can't sing. I can't dance. And it kind of sucks. That and yeah, I love there's like a car chase and the car mm. falls off a cliff. And then yeah. like you see someone just throwing a toy car off a cliff oh, basically. Yeah, oh, yeah. And yeah, then the yeah. next scene, it like it lands perfectly and they're all just sitting there in a state <laughs> of shock kind of stuff. This is really, it's a really fun movie and it's, and it's, mm. it's a satire, but it just doesn't even take itself seriously. Like it doesn't no, have a message no. as much as it's just like a, everything's dumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. This is one other fun fact I wanted to uh, mention. So the Japanese title of, of this movie is um, Hoshikuzu Kyodai no Densetsu, which is a literal translation, uh, Legend of the Stardust Brothers. But the word Hoshikuzu in Japanese, Japanese means uh, stardust. But there's some wordplay in this movie about how they have to change to go from kuzu, which means trash, to Hoshikuzu, which means stardust. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of fun, like... Uh, Basically, Hoshikuzu can also be translated to star trash. Right. If you just take the kuzu part and translate that literally. So that makes that line even better because he's like, if one yeah. of us leaves, we're just trash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As we're together, we are Hoshi Hoshikuzu, but once we split apart, we become kuzu. Um, yeah. Which is, I don't know, I, I always found that a fun word to say, just kuzu, kuzu. It just sounds like a curse. <laughs> Apparently, this movie as well was one of the... I don't know if it was one of the first, but it was at the very least very rare to be working with a storyboard in those days in Japan, hmm. which they were doing. Um, you see some bits of that in that uh, little documentary that's on the Blu-ray as well. So, you know, I, I highly recommend just getting that Blu-ray, just a blind recommendation if you, if you ask me. Um, published by Third Window in the UK. So Third Window is a company run by a guy called Adam Terrell, who used to work for Tartan Asia, uh, which went belly up in the UK. They published a bunch of stuff in like the late 90s, early 2000s, like classics like Ichi the Killer and a bunch of like Takashi Miike movies and a bunch of other stuff as well, like real cult cinema. But yeah, that release is such a godsend. Uh, I know this guy, Adam Terrell, he was at the screening as well, talking about how he had seen uh, Legend of the Stardust Brothers, I don't know, at least like 40 times uh, since discovering it. And it's, it's, it was like a real pa passion project for this guy to get this movie out there. Um, so yeah, all region DVD, Blu-ray combo, and there's a soundtrack CD. Definitely give these people your money if you can spare it for this, because this is, in, especially in Japanese cinema, it's pretty unique. But even in American cinema, like I said before, you've got Phantom of the Paradise and... and uh, Rocky Horror, but I mean that's that's not a huge list. It's it's like there might be a couple others, but yeah, there's this weird obscure Japanese movie that you can add to that list. Um, yeah, this is truly weird mm, in a gr yeah. great way. Yeah, absolutely. And one last thing that is a bit of obscure information uh, because they made a sequel slash remake in 2016. Really? The same team, like all this, well, not all the same actors, but I know like Kan Takagi and uh, Shingo Kubota are in it. Uh, it's directed by Makoto Tezuka. It's called The Brand New Legend of the Stardust Brothers. But I haven't been able to track that down yet. Is it out? It is out, it is out, but only in Japan. Ah. So I can probably buy or order like a Blu-ray from Amazon Japan, but I was kind of planning to get this when I was going to Japan originally in March, but then... yeah. Then, then everything then just happened. <laughs> yeah, then 2020, basically. Uh, my plans, 2020. <laughs> Buying the brand new Legend of Stardust Brothers did not happen. So one day I'll find out. All right, well, we'll have a, a follow-up episode. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's about it for me in terms of Legend of Stardust Brothers. If you have anything else left to say about this. No, I just, this was a great, this was great. And I also think that mm. there is a degree of, um, I know that you like to, make up songs and you yourself were a popular singer 
for your like neighborhood for a hot minute. Was I? Oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like, so this is the legend no, of Carlo in my mind. No original tracks, at least. But yeah, definitely. I, uh, I love doing stupid dances and making up songs. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you're anything like me, you will like this movie. And then the connection on that would be for House. There is a scene mm. where someone literally gets bit in the butt, which... If you've seen our Patreon, you will understand that reference to Carlo. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I will. I almost wanted to make that reference, but I was like, "Oh man, that's gonna be a deep cut. I need, I need to explain that." But then I Bitter remember in the butt. it. Yeah, yeah. The the bucket on the butt. Vampire time traveler. Bitter in the butt. <laughs> that's a movie. Next movie is House. House. Osu, 1977. Uh, you've seen this movie. Come on. Yeah, Everyone's Jesus. seen this movie. That's why you're here listening to this. Exactly. <laughs> this is, you know, it's on Criterion. If you haven't seen mm. it, then you, you know, come on. What's wrong with you? Yeah, what's wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, but yeah, it's, it's pretty essential if you're into like psychedelic weirdo cinema. Um, yeah, I mean, House is it's it's funny. So I haven't seen the la the first time I saw House was in a theater in. Hmm. That's a great first way to see it in the theater. Oh, yeah. It was an art house theater in San Francisco mm. that doesn't exist anymore called the Red Vic, which was oh. very much like couches and yeah. one guy selling okay. popcorn. And <laughs> <laughs> um, it was per it was a perfect first time of seeing it. Mm. And this um, at the time, I remember thinking this is was amazing. Yeah. But but also nonsensical <laughs> oh it's absolute nonsense i mean so it was so uh, funny it was funny watching it now and and mm. yeah exactly seeing like oh no it, it is it is nonsense <laughs> it is absolute nonsense yeah i mean this movie is basically so okay uh, i'll get into the backstory of this movie so basically nobuyiko obayashi again a debut movie for him he began directing commercials for toho did about 200 of them with like people like Charles Bronson, Ringo Starr, you name it. Um, and two years later, he would get his shot at directing a feature film. But they basically asked him to make a cash-in on Jaws. But he thought that was kind of boring, I guess. He was like more interested in making something, you know, like rock and roll, something that would potentially, he would say, shock guys like Ozu and Kurosawa. Not that he hated those movies, but it was just not what he was interested in doing himself. And like I said before, like Japanese cinema had kind of a identity crisis back in that era. And so he felt like he could get away with something a little crazier. Um, so yeah, Obayashi kind of an outsider, like definitely not a studio director like Ozu and Kurosawa. Um, so he saw this opportunity to go, to go a little nuts. And, but he was com coming up short with inspiration a little. So he asked his then 11-year-old daughter, I believe Chigumi, uh, Chigumo, Obayashi, uh, who was obsessed with American horror movies. And she, he basically asked her what she could consider to be scary. So kind of like mining her, insp uh, her imagination for inspiration. Uh, so yeah, that's basically what this movie is. The imagination of an 11 year old girl. Like it all <laughs> doesn't really add up. It's all just crazy ideas thrown at the wall. And I mean, if you're down with that, that's the best thing ever, um, the way it's done in this movie. It's funny because Watching it this time around, I realized mm. that there you actually can make a case for the fact that this is a movie about pent up rage and, and the fears of, of the everyday. And you can say that this is a movie about how, you know, insidious simmering and unchecked anger can be. And it's yeah, like a nightmare I mean, for you and for everyone, you know, and you don't deal with your issues. And yeah, I mean, you said in your letterbox, like a really short write up, like there's no message really in this movie, but there, there kind of is. It just kind of lets, gets drowned out by all the visual excess, basically. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think this movie definitely doesn't make it a point to have a message, but there is something there. Like, particularly, there's like a couple of flashback scenes uh, when they're making their way to the Haosu, the titular Haosu, <laughs> uh, about like the negative effects of war, like very much inspired by Obayashi's own experiences as a child. He, he grew up with a father who fought in the war, unsure whether or not his father would come back or the Americans would just like basically come and kill them 
Um, he also like firsthand experienced Hiroshima uh, back in those days. Um, there is a little bit of that there, but then, yeah, like I said, it just gets kind of drowned out, but well, that's, there's something there. That's the thing. I mean, it, that's exactly what I have for my notes is that there's so mm. much style here that it drowns out any, any other mm. message, but it's also perfect for that. Like the message, mm. it, it, as you said, it, it is, it's there for sure, mm. but it's not mm. important because it's not the point. Mm. Yeah. It gets, it's, it, it's way more about that kind of 11 year old girl fears, which are yeah, way yeah, yeah. more fun and more interesting. And I just, in a way like the style is so distracting that you mm. can't really consider the other stuff because it's so distractingly great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this this movie is what I would call a Tumblr movie. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But if you've ever used or, or looked at Tumblr, it's like all pictures and, 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 and you know, like animated, animated GIFs, GIFs, GIFs. Yeah, I'm going to say GIFs. GIFs. We're not terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it's a movie that is so much about the visuals. So just looking at GIFs will give you a very clear picture of what to expect from this movie. Because it's all just, yeah. It's I mean, all it's, style, it, completely. It's, it's, it's so great to look at. Just you don't have to pay attention, really. I mean, and that's um, it, it, and that too is honestly built into the script. Even though hmm. there was this sort of glimmer of of something beneath it, like it's also a movie about you know these six girls named gorgeous kung fu fantasy, hmm. like prof, like professor Mac yeah. and Melody and Sweet, mm -hmm. and they're all just like going to Gorgeous's uh, aunt's house in the country, yeah. and that yeah. that's it. You know, like who's your favorite of the of the girls? Do you have a favorite? Oh, I don't know. I like. I mean, <laughs> I like kung fu. Yeah, exactly. Kung fu is kind of the best. She's the uh, best one. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, it's it's kind of hard because they're all like very one dimensional. I Completely. Mean, they're as one dimensional yeah. as their names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But this was all like a very conscious choice. Like he totally. very consciously decided to have seven main characters. You know, in the in the vein of Seven Samurai. Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. Seven's like a very good number. And but the downside of having seven main characters in an 80 minute movie is you kind of have to sacrifice character development. So he gave them the, all these very easy identifiable names and characteristics. So you would know right away that that's all there is to them. And don't look for more because it's not there. But yeah, it, it ends up just adding to the whole Gonzo comic book vibe of this movie. It would be weird if these characters were like fleshed out and there's just no time for that, really. Yeah, they, we got we got pianos that got to eat people, you know? Like, we got to get through yeah, this. Yeah, absolutely. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the most character development, which is one of the, my favorite sort of gags in the film, is that mm. Gorgeous's father uh, has a new stepmother that he yeah. introduces. It's like also... He goes away to Italy and he's come. He comes home for the first time in a while, and he says like, "Yeah, Leone said my music was better than Morricone's," <laughs> which I thought was a great line. Yeah, you know, number one character <laughs> development right there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. then he says, "And P.S. Like, uh, here's your new mother." <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this woman comes out, and she's always constantly blowing in the wind. Like, you know, there's yeah, always yeah, a yeah. a perfect lighting and a breeze, and she's like the perfect woman. But of course, gorgeous is you know, horrified that her father is mm. moving on from her dead mother. And, um, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, th that's the only like real character development, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but who cares? Yeah, you... Because it looks, the rest of this is just these girls slowly being picked off and killed by mm. an evil spirit. And, yeah. uh, in, in great ways that, uh, are very much, uh, what I would tell you, I was afraid of as an 11 year old girl, which is mattress <laughs> well, falls on you. Mm. Um, watermelon is actually a head that bites you in yeah, the butt. Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this movie is um, like the horror elements are very effective in this movie, even though they're like very like hokey. But I don't know. I, I really like hokey horror movies, to right. be honest. Um, but it's basically taking classics like you've got uh, Kuro Neko, which is a Kaneto Shindo movie is a very classic Kaidan ghost story movie. Uh, but all of these are like taking place in the feudal era. But what Obayashi is doing, he's taking this and turning it into like a more modern, very eclectic, again, mix that is both kind of reactionary against and toying with how Japan was being more and more influenced by uh, American pop culture to the point that 
even calling this movie house which is an english word it was the very first japanese movie that ever did that before well like very he was like uh there's like a bunch of interviews on the blu-ray as well he was listing off these names like okay normally a japanese ghost story movie would have like i don't know like the ghost lanterns curse or something like that but this was just like hosu and that was kind of revolutionary um, back then first movie to do that which is cool yeah another thing on that eureka uh, eureka is a uk publisher blu-rays um there's a pretty cool video essay on, essay on that one is uh, actually from a british critic called david cairns and i found this especially noteworthy because he compared nobuhiko obayashi's style especially in this movie uh, to frank tashlin mm. who's i know one of your favorites and we talked <laughs> yeah. about him Favorite. when we did our jerry lewis <laughs> episode so i don't know how do you feel about that that comparison I can see it, but I actually, I mean, I think that he's way better than Tashlin in the sense that mm. I feel like this is, this movie is true outsider art in the yeah. way that it really feels like he is trying to throw, he's trying to just do everything. And the, and the, yeah. the, the few things that I know about Haosu is that he didn't pre-plan most of this. Mm -hmm. no, <laughs> most no, of no. this movie <laughs> was improv and, and he didn't know he would shoot things with a special effect in mind, but not knowing exactly how it would look. And so yeah. to me, it reminds me a lot of that, um, what, what ended up becoming like 90s MTV aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which was also very much like, hey, I have a background in claymation and, and now I'm going to shoot a commercial. <laughs> you know, it was like these sort of weird, like, let's just throw everything at this and see what sticks kind of thing, like you were saying before. Mm, and totally. I don't know if he was truthfully trying for realism. He probably wasn't. Clearly there's parts mm. of this is like straight up painted on parts are, yeah, there's a lot of that like blue screen stuff, but it doesn't fully work. And I think that there's mm -hmm. always something amazing when someone is trying for realism and fails, but they end up creating something completely new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely love that kind of stuff, like stuff where you can see the seams, but it doesn't matter because you're watching a movie like i don't need that real realism or like you know right. uh, com computer effects these days are so fucking realistic it's like that's fucking boring man <laughs> it's super boring i, I, I want to I I see that someone made this with their hands right and i want to see like the rough edges and everything that makes it so much more charming and 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 it works into the fantasy of a film like this like yeah. especially when you're saying like yeah you can totally see the seams you can see the like the stitching <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> on this Absolutely. movie and be it's so uniform is the thing if, if mm. it was only that everything else was shot super realistically yeah. and then <laughs> one scene was messed up looking then it's it, it feels like a mistake but when the entire movie looks this way no, no, it's very intently here he buys into this idea that he is mixing art with reality to create this brand new situation because things like when the girls are on the train and then they get off the train or they're on a bus to get to this countryside there's always these billboards behind them that mm -hmm, are straight yeah. up like come to the country billboards that are painted <laughs> that's, uh, yeah that's kind of obayashi's commercial uh, experience totally uh, seeping in a little bit <laughs> totally and it's they're uh they've just gotten off the bus in the countryside and you hmm. see the country like they're out in the country but there's yeah. this giant painted billboard so then when the close-up on the girls happens they have this you can only see the billboard behind them yeah so yeah, it yeah. looks like they're in the middle of a cartoon anyhow and it's absolutely yeah. there's such a great mix of things like that so when you're mixing yeah that sort of the commercial look where it you know the point of it is just it's almost like selling you the product of this yeah, film yeah. it looks very very stylized and very like ideal like an ideal image but... right yeah what what lurks underneath and everything hmm. it, it's so good and the fact that he tries for everything it's not even mm -hmm. that he does that once and then you see that continually he you only see that repeated maybe like twice and then mm -hmm. he, he just keeps going for everything new like none of these girls they all get picked off in in weird different ways but none of them get murdered in the same visual style <laughs> yeah that's true no you can't do that in a horror movie like uh, all the kills have to be unique in an ideal horror movie <laughs> and that's that's one thing he got right because obiasi is, is very inspired as well by uh, mario Ma mario bava uh, the italian uh, yeah which totally comes through horror, horror legend like in fact to the point that he originally wanted to go under the pen name 
Baba Mario, <laughs> but uh, he was, you know, he was kind of like a successful commercial director. So the studios were like pretty insistent on him using his real name. But yeah, very, very obviously the influence. Well, but that's the thing too, is that like people, people are dying in different ways, but like they're not, they're all shot in totally different ways too. Like some of mm -hmm. them are like straight up animated. Some of them are blue screen. Some of them are on a clear set where you can see like a backdrop, you know, like some of them, like they, it, it, no one, like he's, he's constantly trying to, to push the boundaries of what he's yeah. allowed to do and what he can do yeah, as he goes through this entire film. And it's just so glorious. I mean, the, the piano yeah. death scene is the, I think maybe the most famous of the movie, but also it's just mm -hmm. the best. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, you know, and I love her this, as this piano literally just like eats her um, uh -huh. and she's already possessed when she's playing the piano and then she loses her fingers because the thing slams down on her and the keys yeah. turn into teeth. <laughs> and then I love there's a scene later on where, you know, you walk into the room and the piano is still playing and it's just her fingers like ghostly playing mm -hmm. the the yeah. piano while while the girl is lying on the ground but yeah. it's a really creepy concept mm -hmm. in the perfect is, kind yeah. of spooky ghost way but it's also just it's so funny <laughs> there's such a yeah, good sense I mean, of humor in this film yeah too. exactly that's i feel that's just like necessary in a horror movie like especially the sense of humor and the hokiness like i really really appreciate that a lot there's this um movie from I want to say late 60s-ish called The Living Skeleton that has these similar kind of elements. It's a black and white movie. That would be a good one to cover as well uh, at one point, maybe a bit more spooky episode. Uh, also like, you know, like dangling bats and, and hokey skeletons, which there's also one in this movie as well, which yep. I know I, I always just love like a very cartoony skeleton and maybe <laughs> goes back to my love of like, 30s and 40s like uh Oop Iwerks and and Fleischer cartoons yeah I just love that shit especially in horror it's 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 one of my favorite things in horror movies I mean we all got a skeleton that's true that's <laughs> maybe that's why I can relate skeletons and somewhere deep inside I can also relate to King Kong very very easily because he's body hair he's, he, yeah exactly body hair <laughs> and he doesn't like to leave his island mm. True. I can relate to that. If I was on an island, I would never leave. I, I barely leave the apartment, so why would I leave my island? I mean, <laughs> King Kong is just very relatable. I mean, I love Godzilla, but if it's King Kong versus Godzilla, man, that's tough. <laughs> <laughs> but that's another subject. We can also cover some King Kong versus Godzilla movies as well. Oh, totally. Um, well, there's only one of those, but... Well, I think that the for these two movies, what's what's so great about them is that kind of like art aesthetic to them and the mm -hmm. fact that it feels like again i love that unchecked corporate decision and then receiving this this yeah exactly like that to me is like it's like peak humor number one exactly. but it's exactly. also a great product <laughs> it is it is it is i mean this movie movie was a huge success so i mean not so much for the people in it because they didn't really go on to a career that's, that's, well, these were all yeah. mostly non-actors in this, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Just mostly girls who uh, Obayashi no, knew from making commercials. The only one, uh, gorgeous Oshare, uh, is the only one who had any acting experience. That's probably why she was like the main girl, the final girl, you would say, in a horror movie. Uh, she would also continue acting after House as well. But, but that's about it, really. Yeah, this this movie is just such a treat. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen House yet, what, what are you doing, really? I mean, I just want to go back real quick. It's funny that you bring up Baba mm. because I always think of of like Argento specifically, oh, yeah. like Suspiria. Suspiria to me, I don't think is a very good movie. Um, the yeah. original one I'm talking about, '77. Mm. I don't think it's yeah. a good movie, but I think it's visually amazing. Oh yeah, Jesus. but then like Houseu, <laughs> like in a way it's it's also it's even more not a good movie in that it doesn't make really any it makes such the barest I attempt mean, at having a plot and yet it's a better film <laughs> i mean now you're getting into what makes a good movie what what is the definition of a movie I right mean, but it changes it, it, as long as it's moving it's a movie <laughs> basically well this but that's the thing is that this this film because it is so visually fantastic and so mm -hmm. consistently there's no mm -hmm. moments in this that are like boring 
you know, yeah. it, it yeah. always I, is I, doing something visually that's fantastic. So that to to me, it elevates the entire film to be just mm-hmm. overall amazing. Whereas like Suspiria has these like these points of being really fantastic and it has wonderful sets, mm-hmm. but like it, it's too into itself and its plot for me. I think, yeah, I think Suspiria wouldn't necessarily make good gifts and how she does <laughs> I <laughs> mean which is what it comes down to <laughs> comes down to <laughs> maybe like maybe it is that it's just sort of minute by minute which which I think mm-hmm. would speak to his commercial experience yeah, yeah, yeah is yeah. that you have to sell something in literally 60 seconds to 30 seconds so you have to have something that's constantly a visual punch in the face in order to keep somebody's attention whereas mm. and that's what he's doing in this film it's like just constantly giving you something's interesting something interesting and something different yeah. and he pivots and it, it's so great it just makes for the like one of the most enjoyable viewing experiences of something that's like completely ridiculous oh yeah absolutely it's uh yeah like we said before it's nonsense but yeah i, I mean it's kind of hard comparing suspiria and house because they're going for very different totally things. Like, totally suspiria is, is is yeah i guess it's a giallo movie and yeah, and the Jallos, um, I mean, like it, those are also there, totally up and down. But it's just like on a, for me, like I, I, I have to, I think of them on a visual for, level because Baba does that too. Baba always is killing mm-hmm. women in beautiful ways, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or at least interesting <laughs> ways, you know. And and yeah. that's kind of that's what when you watch for me when I'm watching a Jallo, the the only reason I'm watching it is to see some like artistically shot. Oh murder. yeah, yeah, same. Same. So it's yeah. like for Hausu is like it just takes that concept and it elevates it to like exactly what I actually want out of a giallo that essence. I never get. Yeah, <laughs> it's the essence. Like eighty minutes of the essence, right? Com- compared to like moments in a one hundred minute movie, right? Basically, <laughs> which is in Stardust Brothers does that too. Oh, Stardust yeah, Brothers is is giving you like I don't know. It, it gives you everything from a comic book when you think of what you like about comics. Yeah, it yeah, is yeah, it's the exactly. essence of silliness and, and comics and satire without that much to say. But mm-hmm. at the same time, who cares? Because it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's mostly that's what I look for in movies, like the essence of something like that's something that's like pure entertainment. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily look for a message in a movie because I think most movies that go for that don't do it very well like even the ones that people say are like smart movies i'm always like a little underwhelmed it always feels a little ham-fisted um to me so that's why i kind of look more for this kind of thing i just want visuals i just want to be like entertained for like ideally 80 minutes and (laughs) have like fun songs and and just weird shit that doesn't add up but i don't care like I'm, i'm not trying to even though I love a good mystery movie, it uh, those are rare as well. Like, v- well done mystery movies at least. Um, but yeah, I, I I generally just don't care that much about plot and movies really. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. something to be said for it. I you know, and and sometimes that's an approach. It's my approach. I mean, it doesn't have to be for everyone. Absolutely not. But yeah, that's just the way I look at. It. I mean, if you don't take that approach, you're gonna go to jail. Absolutely, but... to my own personal jail, <laughs> which is in my mind, my mind jail. You're going to get stuck in Carlo's mind, which looks <laughs> a little bit like Pee-wee's Playhouse. Oh, yeah, a little more like 100% Pee-wee's Playhouse. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but so yeah. This, this was a great double feature. And even though mm. I guess these movies are not like one's, one's a pop music satire and one is a, mm. a a horror movie horror they call it horror mm. comedy i mean it is it is yeah. comedy because it's funny but it's more of a horror yeah. movie i think i would just go for straight horror it's yeah it's a ghost story it's a classic japanese host story yeah. but just adapted to like out of the feudal era um, and made by a commercial director who <laughs> just asked his 11 year old daughter to come up with crazy shit and which is perfect perfect and and yeah both of these movies they visually they really do feel like they came out of the same time even though there's quite a there's a handful of years in between them there's five years basically yeah, yeah. but they're great Ish. they're just so good they mm. just look like they look like pure art it's like this kind of stuff that i that you really you realize how much you miss when 
you look at what the stuff that's coming out today and, and sort of oh, people Jesus. being this is depressing. <laughs> yeah. People being, you know, subject. Well, I mean, what's the word? People are, are kind of stuck with whatever, you know, money they can get kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. you yeah, know, yeah, people yeah. aren't looking to take so many chances, especially not visually right now. Yeah. So. I mean, they ask Obayashi to make a Jaws knockoff basically. And the, the world is a better place for the fact that he didn't give them exactly what they asked for. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. And the fact don't that get... he said no, and they were like, ah, all right, keep doing it. <laughs> yeah, right. We, we, we don't know what audiences wanted, want anyway, so sure, fuck it. <laughs> so yeah, great, great choice. Stardust Brothers is, is out on Blu-ray. You should definitely buy it and be the first yes. of your friends to... Yeah, yeah, be the cool person in your movie lover circle. Absolutely, you don't, you know, mm. you don't have to tell him that you heard it from Carlo, but <laughs> you should tell him, like, you know, yeah, I found this cool film, and also backdashrew.com, great site. <laughs> Bingo, there you go. <laughs> and yeah, so thank you, and we will um, try and bring you more of these sooner than every six months. But I said that last time, anyhow. But <laughs> uh, we'll see. At least when we do episodes, they're, you know, we're we're happy with. The episodes and we hope you are as well absolutely this is this is fun and and uh see you soon stay safe feel good this podcast is a presentation of backdashrow.com co-founded by veronica dolginko and jenna ipcar also featuring carlo van stepout and dan gorman